apparently somebody was in there, and so one of our guys called timeout, you know, which no one should call timeout but me. So that was a mistake that we made. On I think it was very, very special for him. Well, he kept it inside all week. You know, he's probably letting it out right now. It was a big week for him, but it was, a, it was a bigger week for the team. I was very, very frustrated with everybody saying this was a quarterback and a coach. This is a team sport. The Bucks won this game, right? And we beat the Patriots. Right? We're losing sight that this is a team game. Everybody wanted to make this all up about Brady and Belichick. I don't think Bill played a snap. He had 22 guys out there playing their ass off, and I knew they would. And we had 22 guys out there playing their asses off. One of them does happen to be named Brady. He's got dancing feet with that lower body. It's unbelievable. Look at the body. Look at that bubble butt. Third and goal, three-yard line. Goff takes the snap. Pressure comes. Hit. Falls out. Quinn knocked it out. Scooped up by Matt. There he goes at the 30. Oh, oh, Gives the ball up to Eddie Jackson to the 40. And Jackson is pulled down shy of the 45-yard line. Just being a little sarcastic and having a little fun here. Just crushed my dreams. Boom. Sadness. That's the one. Before we get some more into the Raiders, I do have a question because that play you just heard there at the end, the Bears forcing a fumble against Jared Goff, Cleo Max scooping it up. He then lateraled it to a teammate as he was getting tackled. Uh, why are defensive players so much more likely to lateral the ball to a teammate than like an offensive player when they're down the field? Uh, that is a great question. I have no idea if that's coached. I would be speculating on that. All I can tell you is that uh, as someone who had the Lions in a money line parlay <laughs> yesterday, um, watching them go down three times inside the 10 yard line and come away with a grand total of zero points was something to be told. Well, I think you did that to yourself by trusting Jared Goff and the Lions. It was a free bet. Okay. All right. Free bet. Free money. Blow it on the Lions. Um, mm. All right. Uh, so the Raiders play tonight Monday Night Football in LA against the Chargers. Um, I want to ask you a sort of go a different way. There are two undefeated teams left, the Cardinals and the Raiders. Which one do you think is better? Ooh. Uh, really, it's, um, it, it's a similar question, just with quarterbacks at different stages of their career. Um, so with the Cardinals and the Raiders, what do we say? We say we have defenses that we're not really sure if they're as improved as they've appeared thus far. And you have quarterbacks who appear to have taken a big step forward. It's just that Derek Carr is approaching a full decade in the league and Kyler Murray is in year three. So I think ultimately the Cardinals are probably the better team. I'm not 100% convinced they're going to end up with the better record, though, playing in the NFC West and considering the Raiders schedule gets way softer in the second half. Well, we've said that for a couple of years and it hasn't worked out very well for the Raiders, I know. but I know, but <laughs> we have to keep trusting what our eyes are seeing Tyler or else. Why should we watch the games at all? When the schedule gets easier, the Raiders somehow get worse. That's just how it works. Okay. So hold on on the Cardinals. They're in a really tough division in the NFC West. What, what NFC like best teams in the NFC, you have the Packers up here who aside from their week one loss, by 100 points of the Saints, which looks weirder by the week. Packers are up there. The Bucks are up there despite losing to the Rams. The Rams are probably up there despite getting blown out yesterday by the Cardinals. Cardinals in that upper tier? Like, have you seen enough to say, yep, they're one of the top tier teams in the NFC? I'm going to go ahead and rearrange one thing you said in there. Um, so my top tier is Tampa and the Rams alone. Okay. Um, and frankly, I still have Tampa first. Um, I know what happened in that game. 
uh, last week between Tampa and the Rams. I think there were a lot of fluky things, and Tampa is still pretty banged up all in all. But if Tom Brady is still throwing for 400-plus yards, I still believe in in Tampa's ability. Um, that second tier, whew, man, I, Cardinals, yeah, I, I think they're they're close to that. Uh, I'm not 100% convinced the Packers belong there. Okay. Um, that defense is awful. Um, <laughs> and they have an offense that can overcome some of it. Um, but the Pittsburgh Steelers were an offside call away from having a blocked field goal and making a real game of it in Lambeau. So I'm not sure I'm ready to put the Packers up there quite yet. And maybe an incorrect offside call. We got it. We've seen it two, uh, two weeks in a row where defensive players are moving at the same time as the snap and it gets called offsides because it, it looks offsides. But when you see the replay, it's like, huh, he's moving at the same time as the ball. I, I feel like the NFL might, we might have to figure this out with the NFL and what exactly is offsides. Because if you're moving at the same time as the ball, I feel like you should be rewarded for that. I mean, look, if we have to go full Zapruder film and go like frame by frame on this thing <laughs> to try to figure out whether or not it was offside, it, let's just say it wasn't. No one wants to stop the game on these things. No one wants to change games on these calls. All right. Now, AFC West side, the Chiefs beat the Eagles 42 to 30. Uh, neither team punted in the game. I think it was the fifth game in NFL history where there were zero punts. Kansas City now two and two, but you also had the Broncos lose to the Ravens 23 to seven and Teddy Bridgewater left that game. Drew Locke got to play. Uh, so the Broncos started three and one. Now they are three or three and oh, now they are three and one. Um, what are we doing with the AFC West? Obviously we've got a big game tonight with the Raiders and chargers, but I think Kansas City's still number one to you, despite their defense looking horrific. Absolutely. Um, are the first three weeks of Kansas City's season all that different than the Raiders' first three weeks? I don't think they are. I, I think these two teams have actually played a pretty similar beginning to the season. It's just that, again, when when you operate everything on the tiny little precipice that these teams seem to walk, then you're going to win some, you're going to lose some, right? They shouldn't have beaten the Browns in week one, Kansas City, but the punter somehow had a ball clang off his hands on a fine snap, and then all of a sudden, you know, the Chiefs are able to come back. Um, if Patrick Mahomes doesn't throw one of the worst passes of his career and Clyde edwards Alaris and fumble against the Ravens, they probably win that game. And against the Chargers, they had multiple opportunities to win that game down the stretch. But again, uh. they, they got themselves in, into a huge hole early on with the interceptions. So could the Raiders have ended up in the same place as Kansas City? Absolutely, they could have. Um, I am not all that worried about the Kansas City Chiefs because let's go ahead and look at what comes up after Buffalo at Washington at Tennessee Giants. So if they're able to win at home against the Bills, then you're probably looking at three very easy wins before they have the Packers come in. They should beat the Packers as well before they see the Raiders. So, all right, wait, quick question. Preseason, would you have said Kansas City, Chargers, Raiders, Broncos, the order for the AFC West? No, I would have said Kansas City, Broncos, Chargers, uh, Raiders. Oh, okay. All right. Well, then since that's your answer, let me ask you this. Has that changed at all? Yeah, it has. And, and that's largely because I had to watch Drew Locke for a half football yesterday. <laughs> and I got to realize that as much as we talk about the Denver Broncos quarterback situation and how much they screwed it up in the offseason by not either drafting someone or bringing in someone better than Teddy Bridgewater, the drop from Teddy Bridgewater to Drew Locke is real. And I don't think people really thought so in the preseason, but it is. So 
and that's not actually for me to drag the Raiders. I actually think this division can be really good top to bottom. I have a ticket on the Raiders over seven wins. Um, but ultimately, I felt like the Broncos had the strongest roster outside of the Chiefs. Um, now, again, the injuries are crushing them with Judy and Hamler and Chubb. Um, and I, with the Chargers, I, I need to see it for a little longer than, than three weeks to, you know, to go full Denny Green and crown their asses. I think there's a chance we see sort of the same thing play out in the AFC West and the NFC West, where you have really no like bottom feeders in either of those divisions. And the last place team in that division is ultimately just going to be. I don't know if unlucky is the right word, but slightly worse than those teams. And so they end up losing a few games that they wouldn't have to play if they were in another division. So whether it's the Raiders or the Broncos or the Chargers, somebody's going to finish last in this division. And they're probably only going to win six or seven games. And you look back and say that wasn't a very good season, but it's probably going to be a better team than a six or seven win team. And I think the same will be true of Seattle or whoever the hell is up at the bottom of the NFC West. It's a good team that might only get to seven and 11. There was a stat out there, and I'm going to screw this up, that I saw last night that said basically that this has been the season already with the most games decided on um, plays in the final minute of regulation and in overtime in 50 years already thus far, um, you know, to this point of the season. And so that just shows you how close everything is. So there could easily be an AFC West team that finishes 7-9 and nine by no real fault of its own, right? Like, Think about the games as we get ready for Raiders and Chargers on Monday Night Football tonight. Think about the two games these teams played last year, right? You have an overtime game and a game in which you were one foot of Donald Parham coming down from having a different outcome. Like, both of those games could have gone either way, and those two teams were pretty much on the same plane last year. And I think the Raiders and Chargers are pretty close again this year. Uh, here was the tweet. Uh, Adam Schefter sent it out. There have been 15 games this season with the game-winning score uh, in the final minute of regulation or coming in overtime, the most such games for the first weeks of a season in the past 50 years. So we have had uh, more close games, more games decided at the very end than any other year so far. And the Raiders have been a perfect example of that because they've won two games in overtime. Not only have the Raiders won two games in overtime, they've won the coin toss and let the other team have the ball and still won two games in overtime. So Tyler, this actually gives me amazing flashbacks to 2016 right yeah when we were looking at the Raiders and saying they're coming off a 12 and 4 season and yet you also had to look at it and say um hey by the way they had an unsustainable record in one score games they could have another 12 and 4 season just based on the variance of one score games <laughs> and we could go into the offseason saying they're still the fourth best roster in the AFC West yeah, oh, absolutely, because it, it it is a lot. They haven't had the go for two. What, did they win two games on two-point conversions in 2016? Um, they haven't had that yet. We haven't had John Gruden decide into the game we're going for two to win it rather than this stupid overtime stuff. Uh, but hopefully we'll get that at some point in the future, and they go for two and, and win it or lose it on that play rather than the silly overtimes they've had to play. But, yeah, absolutely. It's Because, again, the AFC West is good. It's a, it's a good division with four solid teams in it. And I don't, I don't know that anybody besides the Chiefs are a true Super Bowl contender, but there's four good teams in it. And like I said, whoever finishes last is going to be maybe a little unlucky and finish 7-11. Whoever finishes second might simply just be a little lucky and get to 12 wins this year because, hey, they won close games or they had some turnover luck in important division games or something like that. And hell, we'll see that tonight. I mean, I expect tonight's game to be a one-score game. I expect it to be a close game, and one turnover is probably going to be the difference in the entire game. 
I will tell you that in terms of if you're thinking to yourself, oh, well, he's saying the roster the roster's going to be terrible and they're going to win 12 games. What, what does that mean? Well, what it means is that I'm someone who, again, has a Raiders over seven wins ticket. The other half of that Lions money line parlay was the Raiders. I think the Raiders are probably going to win this game tonight. But that doesn't mean that they're better than the Chiefs. The Chiefs have had some terrible, terrible things go against them early in the year. They still don't have Frank Clark. I think anyone who gets ahead of themselves when it comes to whether the Kansas City Chiefs are going to be there at the end of the season is fooling themselves. All right, so give me a score prediction then. For tonight? Yes. Uh, Raiders 28, Chargers 25. All right, I'll go. uh, Jared, Wait, Jared, are you ready? Oh, you're not prepared at all. Okay, all right. I'll have to stall a little bit. It will also be a one-score game, um, and I, I'll, I'll go the other way then. I say the Chargers win this one, and I will make it 31-30. to 30, The Chargers win this one. You ready, Jared? Here's Jared's Scorigami prediction. 5-13. to 13. <laughs> And he gave it backward. I love it. He does. I, he does that every time, too, and I know that annoys Adam so much. Oh, it, it drives me absolutely insane. But that's okay, because... 13-5 would be awesome. I would love that game. So would Tyler, apparently, based on uh, his love I, from I am, last night's uh, snooze fest. I am not claiming that I will love that ever again in the future. I just, for some reason, enjoyed last night's game. It's not a game I would ever have liked before in the past, but for some reason, I enjoyed it. I don't, I don't well, take credit for that. Here's the thing. Five guarantees a safety. Do, do we know that? Miami's offensive coordinator is going to be available for either of these teams tonight. See, I, I was thinking of pick two. Like, a, oh, yeah. good call. Good call. So you're not thinking of throwing a bubble screen in the end zone. <laughs> they throw a bubble screen at the two yard line and somebody takes it 90 yards the other direction. Still be a bubble screen. Go. All right. Coming up next, it's Bischoff's briefs. And we take a look at one of the longest streaks without a win in UNLV football history. Bischoff's Briefs. Dude, I'm not going to cave in. End of story, dude. Bischoff's Briefs. Dude, 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 dude. Bischoff's Briefs. Dude. Bischoff's Briefs. I guess you've got a point there. Today marks 673 days since UNLV's last football win. And because UNLV will not play this weekend, they have a bye week, UNLV will break the program record for most consecutive days without a win. That will happen next Friday. Not this coming up Friday, but the next Friday. UNLV will officially break that record unless they somehow schedule a game in a hurry and win it. Uh, Now... If you're looking at actual games played, uh, Marcus Arroyo has lost 11 straight as head coach. Um, That is not the longest streak. It is not actually even the second longest streak. If he loses to Utah State in two weeks, he will tie the second longest streak in UNLV history. Uh, But he's got to get to 16 to tie the longest losing streak by games. The days one is a little bit different simply because they only played six last year. They did not get to play a full season. If they had played a full season and lost them all, uh, we would be having a different conversation about how many games in a row they have lost. So that is the history that Marcus Arroyo is making as UNLV's head coach. Now, the actual game on Saturday, they lost to Texas San Antonio 24-17, to a close game. 
Uh, they did get a couple of missed field goals that gave them a shot late to tie the game. Uh, but despite the close loss, despite the uh, eh, maybe it's a moral victory again, few things stuck out to me. First off, Julio Garcia was ejected. He received two unsportsmanlike penalties for after the whistle plays, pushing and shoving, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but he was ejected for that. Also, Kolowaske, the starting nose tackle, he jumped off sides. Just him, not the team, just him four times. Uh, he's the starting nose tackle. He lines up over the center, over the ball when it gets snapped. And he still jumped off sides four times, including on a fourth and one in the fourth quarter that allowed Texas San Antonio to burn about two more minutes off the clock before UNLV's final drive, where they did have a chance to tie the game. Now, the reason those two things stuck out to me is, um, if you recall earlier this year, despite losing, uh, Marcus Arroyo has tried to take some credit for building the culture at UNLV. Remember, he was uh, happy that his guys were mad after they lost to Iowa State. They, they lost to a top 25 team, and they were upset, and that was a good sign. He was happy about the discipline that his team had played with. And then, in what is only the second close game of the Marcus Arroyo era, the discipline was non-existent. One offensive lineman ejected, one guy jumping offsides four times to help cost UNLV a chance at winning that game. Plus, here's a fun detail that maybe only the media cares about, but according to Mike Grimala, who covered this game, no players were made available to the media after the game. So Marcus Arroyo has no wins at UNLV, and the culture he was proud of building up is now non-existent in what was an actual winnable game. Now, I do have some positives for you from that. Texas San Antonio came into that game averaging 5.4 yards per play on offense. UNLV held Texas San Antonio to 5.4 yards per play. UNLV allowed 24 points to UTSA. Again, a couple of missed short field goals there, but still 24 points. That's the lowest of the year by Texas San Antonio. Their previous opponents were Illinois, Lamar, Middle Tennessee State, and Memphis. So basically UNLV's defense ranks pretty comparably to Illinois, Lamar, Middle Tennessee State, and Memphis. And considering where UNLV normally ranks on defense, if I told you they're as good as Illinois, Lamar, Middle Tennessee State, and Memphis, say it's a hell of a defense. Their defense actually performed really well in that game. Also, Cameron Friel threw for 307 yards and completed 68 percent of his passes he actually made quite a few good plays sort of uh out of system plays where it wasn't just drop back hit the first read now he had some issues he threw two picks I will say they were both on third long so not that interceptions are good but that's like the best time to throw one is when it's third or fourth and long and you're just like hey we need to convert the first down or we're punting anyways uh but the bigger problem for Cameron Friel is he takes sacks uh, six times in that game. He was sacked, and I don't even know that they're on the offensive line many times. There was one where they missed a blitz right up the middle, and he got sacked, and he fumbled on that one. But Cameron Friel doesn't move in the pocket often. He doesn't appear to have great uh, awareness of where the oncoming rushers are. Uh, that's probably the biggest issue for Cameron Friel. Otherwise, when he actually threw the ball, looked solid, looked like a decent quarterback. Now, offensively, they only scored 17 points. It's not very many, but it did feel like there was some competency there. It did feel like the offense wasn't pulling teeth every time they stepped on the field like we have seen earlier this year. So a little bit more optimistic, even though it's another loss, still a little bit more optimistic about UNLV. 
Tyler, I'm going to do something I don't do a whole lot of on these airwaves. Uh, I'm going to defend Marcus Arroyo for a second. All right. Um, because you talk about the lack of discipline and the uh, the culture selling that we've gotten from Marcus Arroyo. And that is exactly what he focused on after the game. Right. Marcus Arroyo's quotes were all about how they played undisciplined. They played sloppy and how mad he was about that. So he's holding himself and his team accountable for the thing that he wants to see the most out of them. Now, that's in words. Did he hold them accountable in actions, not making any players available to the media after the game? And I know you're probably sitting there saying to yourself, oh, who cares if they talk to the media? Like, they still played the game. Right. Yeah, they played the game. And Marcus Arroyo has been selling to us that it's not just about the game. It's about the culture. It's about the steps that they're making. Well, accountability is one of those steps. So put some of your senior leaders in front of the media and let them answer some questions. Yeah, You don't have to put Garcia out there. I get it. But put someone out in front of the cameras, in front of the pens, to take some accountability for the lack of discipline that was there. So that, to me, is a failing on his part and probably a rookie head coach uh, sort of failing by Marcus Arroyo. Yeah, I would. I'll be honest. I'll be surprised if it like that sort of happens again. Like, I don't think Arroyo has done anything like that yet. I'm trying to remember. Obviously, I wasn't in San Antonio, but I don't think there's ever been a situation where they did not have a player available until then. Even last year when everything was done virtually, I think there was still always a player available. So I don't think that happens. I think that will change and that even if they lose to Utah State in some heartbreaking, undisciplined fashion or something, that there'll be players available and there'll be more of that level of accountability because Mike Romalva, who we're going to talk to in just a couple of minutes here, he tweeted this out. In recent years, at least, the last five to ten years, the only coach that's really shied away from like having players available to the media was, Mar- oh, was Marvin Menzies. And things didn't go well for Marvin Menzies. So... I think that one will change pretty quickly. Okay, so you talked about the positives that we saw from you and Elvin. I think what everyone probably cares the most about is, do any of those positives and any of the progress we saw in terms of their competency give you any more hope for a win this year? You ready for this? UNLV is going to beat Utah State in two weeks. Ooh! Someone's about to get unblocked. So Utah State, they, they've actually been pretty solid offensively this year. Uh, they're top three in yards per game and yards per play, but they've had a lot of turnovers, so they haven't actually scored a ton of points. But their offense is solid. But here's what I'm looking at. Utah State and UNLV, the worst two defenses in the conference. Uh, SP Plus has Utah State actually as a worse defense this year than UNLV. They're both bottom three in points per game, uh, yards allowed, yards per game, and yards per play allowed in the Mountain West. Utah State's defense is bad. I think UNLV will move the ball. I think they will score in this game better than they have at any other point this year. And I think because of that, that that's their window. That's their opportunity in two weeks. I will say both teams have a bye. So I don't know that there's necessarily an advantage that UNLV has a bye going into this game because both teams do. But I, I think that's the game. Utah State's defense, it's the worst they're going to see the entire season. That's where UNLV wins a game. I'm looking forward to you and Marcus Arroyo chatting on social media for the rest of the season after that game it'll be fun he's gonna be the he's gonna be hosting the coaches show (laughs) all right coming up next mike gravala joins the show our stats hogwash are you tired of hearing tyler do math on the radio tweet at bischoff underscore tyler and at ed graney from their own 45 first and 10 roadrunners 
play action fake. Pass on a little batted in the air. Caught by the quarterback, Harris, who runs out of bounds at the 48-yard line. Sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. Courtney Reese in the backfield. Not Charles Williams on first and 10 from the 26. The pass is caught and a hook and ladder to Reese. Reese gets inside the 20. All the way down to the 18-yard line. Wow, often do you see a hook and ladder play. Joining us now from the Las Vegas Sun is Mike Gramala. Good morning, Mike. Hey, Tyler. What's up? And Adam. <laughs> so, all right, we uh, we just finished talking a little bit about Marcus Arroyo and not making any players available. Uh, you were there in San Antonio, so take us through, like, was there requests for that? Like, did you guys ask for players and they said no, or do they just simply not offer any, and how big of a deal you think that is? Well, it's, it's usually um, on the road what happens is the game ends and uh, after the coaches go to the locker room and talk to the players or whatever, um, they'll come out at the same time. So you'll have Marcus Arroyo at a table and you'll have like a player on either side of him, usually like an offensive player and a defensive player, um, and they'll answer questions at the same time. But Marcus Arroyo just came out by himself, answered questions for you know five or six minutes, and then he got up and left. And then it, you were just kind of standing around waiting like, are players coming out afterwards, or how are we doing this? And then, uh, so I asked, like, are we are any players coming out? And we were told no. So that was just the end of that. And you know, probably not a big deal to most most people um, on the outside, but to me, that is a pretty bad sign. Of you know, when things are rosy in the locker room and everything's going swell, um, you're not blocking players from talking to the media after games, even after losses. So that tells me that, you know, things were pretty bad after that game. Um, and Marcus Herro just didn't want to give his – he didn't want to give his players a chance to, to say something, to say the wrong thing, or he just wanted to end it and get out of there. But it, to, to me, it was a – you know, it, it can't be interpreted as anything other than a bad sign of where the team is right now. I mean, don't you think, Mike, the, the bigger problem is that it leaves it open to all of our interpretation, right? I, like, you could throw a player out there, and let's be honest about this, most of them pretty well media trained under shackles and say, go out there, and if you say anything stupid, you're not getting any playing time, right? Like, I think it's almost worse to leave the void out there for us to try to fill to say what's going on when everything he's been preaching is about culture and accountability. Yeah, and obviously they're not going to send out the goat of the game. You know, they're not going to send out Julio Garcia to, you know, get peppered with questions about, you know, why he got ejected or stuff like that. So you send out, you know, you take Charles Williams, who, you know, Lord knows he's been out there often enough after a loss. I mean, like, he knows how to handle that. You throw at Charles Williams and you throw at some defensive player. And, they, you know, there's not a ton of media there. You know, it's me. It's basically me and then, the, you know, a couple of team uh, reporters like the, the ones who travel with the team, so it's it's not exactly a firing squad. So um, it was just so that to me just says like something specific about that game and what happened after the game and what the vibe was in the locker room when Oreo addressed his team. There was something that was going on where he just did not want to put his players out there. So and it, it does leave it open to interpretation, but I don't think that's going to be an every week thing. Like he just that doesn't really happen. Um, you know, as I heard you guys talking before, Marvin Menzies tried to do it, and that did, didn't work out. And it's just like, it, I, I, I don't expect that to be a, a continuing thing for the rest of the year, but it does, to me, say something about what the postgame was like for that team. 
Now, on the positive side, your lead into this interview was me predicting that UNLV will finally win a game and they will beat Utah State in two weeks. Do you share my optimism for UNLV football? I do think that they're going to win a game. I don't know if it's going to be Utah State, but I, I, said it, I said it a couple weeks ago. I do think that this team is going to win a game this year. Uh, it's just there's a lot of uh, factors that go into like. They've got to get one. They've got to get a game where a quarterback makes it through the entire game. You almost saw it uh, against UTSA. Friel almost made it through the entire game. He had to come up for one play because he got hurt. Um, they scored a touchdown but, on that play, though. And they did. They did. It was a fourth and goal, and they scored a touchdown. I'm not saying it's bad, but they need a, a, it's got to be a game. Where everything has to line up. It's got to be a game where the defensive, defense plays well, gets a few stops. It's got to be a game where Brumfield goes wire to wire. Um, it's going to be a game where Charles Williams and the running game get going, and we've seen that offensive line play okay, and we've seen them play terrible. Uh, so it's got, like, all those things have to line up and everything has to go right. And you've got seven more opportunities for that to happen. I feel like you've got to uh, – it's got to happen at some point. I don't think they're so bad that they should be an 0-12 team. You know, 1-11, and 2-10, like it feels like that kind of team to me. So I think it will happen. I don't know about uh, – after the bye week, but at some point, I think they'll get one. Mike, if there's one thing your trademark uh, is, it's uh, exuberance. It's it's you know youthful <laughs> enthusiasm. Um, and I was talking to Steve Cofield the other day, and, and he kind of playfully said that he was impressed by your enthusiasm for what you saw in the first UNLV uh, Run Rebels basketball practice. So, uh, what's got you so giddy, Mike? Uh, I. I don't. I guess it was just uh, probably just getting caught, swept up in the atmosphere after a year of like not being in person, not really getting to do any of that. But then so finally we're at an open practice, and you know the guys are running up and down the floor, and the team, you know, they look like they're much better than last year in terms of roster. And you've got guys who are, you know, they're holding an impromptu dunk contest, and they're hitting some threes, and they're playing. Uh, defense and everyone was going hard it was just a it was a good atmosphere I, enjoy, I enjoyed that first practice now talk to me like when they're holding open practice on tuesday morning in, in january and the team is 500 and you know we've been there all season and i probably won't be so exuberant but you know i'm allowed to get excited on you know the first day of the season right i think you're always excited to start the year where'd you predict them to finish in the mountain west last year uh i have to go back and look probably like fourth or fifth yeah i think it was higher than that was it? Yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah, I don't remember. It, either way, it doesn't count because it wasn't an official Mountain West preseason <laughs> predict. Because I, I am not included in the Mountain West preseason or postseason polls, so it doesn't really count, anyways. Yeah, don't sound too bitter about that. All right. Uh, more importantly, uh, give us a review of what was it the Texas Chainsaw Massacre restaurant you went to in uh, Texas? Yes, yes. As you guys know, I hardly ever venture outside. When I go on the road for these road games, I do next to nothing. But once I saw uh, that we were going to San Antonio, I know that the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the house from the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie, was at some point in the 90s. They, they dismantled the house from wherever it was in the middle of nowhere, Texas, and they moved it to um, a couple hours outside San Antonio and rebuilt it, reconstructed it, and turned it into a restaurant. So I... I that's been on my calendar for a long time. So as soon as I landed in San Antonio, I headed straight there. About a two-hour drive. As soon as you landed, <laughs> a two-hour <Yeah>. drive. <laughs> yeah. So this is this is a uh, this was my whole my whole uh, trip basically. Went out there, 
had a nice steak, uh, walked around the, you know, the, the whole entire house is open, so I get to walk around the house. Um, and for someone like me, who's sort of a, a horror movie aficionado, that was a, it was a big deal. So yeah, I was definitely playing tourist uh, on this trip. <laughs> okay. What did you eat there? I know you just said a steak, but we need a full breakdown of what you actually ate here. It was uh, a steak, and you got two sides. So I got uh, I ordered mashed potatoes, and then the waiter was sort of like, and what else? And, I said, huh? and he said, well, you get two sides. So I looked through it, and I got French fries. So that's kind of, I got a steak, mashed potatoes, and French fries. And uh, it was good, you know, as you would expect. Uh, okay, how did you, I, I assume you get your steak done uh, as well done as possible? Well done. Well done. Um, Was it cooked enough? Did they cook it well enough done for you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a legitimate restaurant. So, like, they're, I, you know, I didn't have any concerns about that. It was nice and gray, <laughs> nice and hot off the stove, nice and gray. It was charred. Uh, yeah. It, I would give that, if you asked me for, like, a letter grade, I would give it an A. I was really happy that I forced a. myself to do that. I, I like <laughs> the fact that you're here defending the honor of it. It's a legitimate restaurant. Like, yeah, sure. I, I don't think there are enough fans of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre still alive that they could do anything other than have a decent restaurant. Yeah, and there were, I was not the only person there, let me tell you, at like 3 o'clock on a Friday afternoon. There, was, there were people there. Um, there other, many, there, there definitely other groups of weirdos like me. I was the only one there by myself, though. Yeah, so I might have been the weirdest person there, but there were definitely other uh, horror weirdos. You drove to, I'm Googling this, Kingsland, Texas? I did. Man, that's a disaster. That's a yeah. That was a drive, man. Good God, why'd you do that? It's like halfway to Dallas. I wanted to see the Texas Chainsaw House. I've never seen it before. <laughs> Uh, for those that don't know, Mike, as much as he hates a eating real food, loves horror movies. Uh, so this is very high on his list, apparently. And, okay. it's, and it's October. Like, how many times am I going to be within driving range of the Texas Chainsaw House in October and have the time and the, the, the ability to go there? So, I mean, it was a no-brainer for me. A+. plus. I just bumped it up. A+. Plus. A+. Plus. All right, Mike, get out of here. We appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Uh, Adam, you weren't here last week when we talked to Mike after he went to Fresno, um, when he went to a Quiznos for the first time. Oh God, it's so good. He tried to order a meatball sub, which they don't have at Quiznos. And the lady behind the counter was tell was telling him they don't have meatball. Mike thought she was saying what cheese. And Mike just kept saying no cheese until somebody in line behind him yelled at him and said, they don't have a meatball sub here, you idiot. First of all, I did not know Quiznos was still open anywhere. Second of all, um, don't you think the Quiznos business model of we toast it, that could be literally broken by Subway putting an <laughs> oven in the toast your sub, is a little bit flawed? Uh, something's a little bit wrong there. But I do love the fact that Mike was going to an essentially defunct sub chain uh, <laughs> while on the road. In, in Fresno, where there, there are like two good restaurants in Fresno, which are like the only two good things in Fresno, period. And he went to a Quiznos. Amazing. Adam, the best part is we asked him, okay, well, how are you? You're going to eat a meatball sub? Like, that seems messy. That seems saucy. And he's like, well, I disassemble it. So he eats basically <laughs> spaghetti and meatballs 
without like hold the spaghetti. I disassemble it. The sort of thing that people talk about, like going to a fancy restaurant, like, I'm going to have a deconstructed yes. meatball sub. <laughs> yeah, that's Mike Grimala. By the way, go, going to the <laughs> Texas Chainsaw Massacre restaurant, which you know probably has a huge markup on that steak, right? Like, you're probably paying $40 for that steak. And you're like, sir, how would you like it done? You're like, dead? You're like, how dead? Dead. I want it blacker than my shoe. I want I want to talk about one of the original bloodiest movies of all time, but I want no blood in the steak. None whatsoever. All right, here we go. We've got two tickets to go see John Fogarty's Travel and Band Sunday, October 10th at the Encore Theater at the Wynn. John Fogarty, two tickets coming to the Encore Theater at the Wynn. 702 364 1100 702 Three six four eleven hundred to go see John Fogarty. We'll take caller number six. Is Tyler a know-it-all? Can you prove him wrong? Call the press box voicemail and let us know. 702-720-4678. Some breaking news from Andrew Marchand of the New York Post. Why didn't Rodney Harrison, I keep wanting to call him Hudson. Why didn't Rodney Harrison hold his umbrella on NBC's pregame? I'm told by NBC he had his notes on his cell phone and his microphone was in the other hand, so he couldn't hold three items. A couple of key points here. Uh, number one, Tony Dungy was holding a microphone, an umbrella, and like a purple folder of some point, uh, some sort. Mike Tarico was holding a microphone, an umbrella, and some note cards. And I have yet to see a video or a screenshot of Rodney Harrison actually holding his phone. His hand is empty or in his pocket in every shot I've seen. I feel like this is the subject of a John Boy video that should be coming up <laughs> soon, breaking this whole thing down. But can I ask you a better question? Why did we feel the need to have the pregame on the field in a torrential rainstorm? Yes. Like, was it, did that add something to the broadcast to see three men in suits getting rained on? It did. Never, even if it's good weather, it doesn't add to the broadcast. Well, it feels natural, at least, to have them on the field in that situation. But we, with the billions of dollars that go into NFL broadcasts, there's not a contingency plan for it rained. <laughs> in, in New England? <laughs> right. We have forecasts. We have ways of predicting these things. I'm sure there was somewhere they could have built a set for I mean, this crew. There are literally pop-up tents on both sides of the of the field just go grab it <laughs> yeah use the medical tent right there's nothing what else do we use that for in the pregame nothing yeah well hopefully nothing all right uh so jared who won the john fogarty tickets that would be uh joseph all right adam i'm gonna ask you this should i know who john fogarty is i'm gonna say no i know who john fogarty is but i think that's a little bit out of your age okay range. so you're okay. giving me giving me credit here jared thinks i should know who john fogarty is no nah, i Look, I, I, I think that, uh, Jared, asking him to know CCR when we already know the things that he doesn't know is kind of a stretch. The hell is CCR? Exactly. Okay, but the one that he should know, the what? what is the one song that every single baseball fan knows because it's played at every single ballpark? I know. I know. All right. Tyler, do you know the song Centerfield? What, what by Put the me name? in, coach. I'm ready to play. Oh, I know that line. The rest of the song? Eh, probably not. That's John Fogarty. Oh. Is that a good song by him? 
Uh, I think it's a song by him. Okay. It's a song by him. There are many better songs by him, <laughs> which he will play in the performance that Joseph is going to. Yes. That is well done, Adam. What What is CCR? Creedence Clearwater Revival. Uh, never heard of that in my life. I guarantee, with, uh, like, uh, Jared, this is something I'd actually be willing to put money on. We could find a CCR song he's heard before. I don't doubt that I've heard a song before, but I've never heard of, what did you say? Clearwater, what Clearwater Revival? Credence. Credence. What the hell is that? Do you know why that's a name of a band? Why would I have to in the first place? Because it's a this weird is a, name. This is about you not knowing anything, not about do you know why the band is named what it's named. I don't know. I don't care. It's about the music. I'm just trying to find, oh, yeah, I've heard this song before. Look at that. It, it took him like Eight three seconds. notes. <laughs> I've, is that, uh, I think I've seen a movie. Is that Pineapple Express? I mean, I think it's every. No, 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 no. Tropic Thunder. Confusing the name of the movies. Trop- that's in Tropic Thunder, well, right? I, I think by law, any song that takes place or any like thing that takes place with like military or the jungle, <laughs> they're required by law to feature that song. a helicopter for, in a movie that for, song's in it. Yes, the, it, it's it's Fortunate Son. The name of the song is Fortunate yeah. Son. Okay, um, all right. I, I don't. Can I get back to something from earlier? Why sure. did you have such a terrible reaction to me asking Ashley Vice to teach me to hot call? Because it's one of the worst things in the SEC, like outside of the cowbells at Mississippi State. Jazz hands. Yeah, it's horrible. Like of all the like traditions or all the weird things that SEC schools do, it's probably I. I might come up with a list for you, but cowbells are the worst, and that's probably the second worst. I am looking forward to Bischoff's briefs tomorrow with a list of the worst SEC fan base calls or traditions. Yeah. I just gave it to you. I mean. No, there there are a few more schools in the SEC. I need to see how deep your hate runs. I was just trying to get a free hog calling lesson from a woman who advertised free hog calling lessons. You don't need it. I will. I will. If we do that, it's just going to be me complaining about Mississippi State for 10 minutes. Like, I'm not even going to end up giving you a full list. I'm just going to complain about how they're allowed to bring cowbells in. How are they allowed to bring cowbells into anything? Artificial noisemakers are illegal at every stadium in the country, except in Starkville, Mississippi. And the Golden One Center, apparently, in Sacramento. That was a thing for a long time, too. Sacramento. That's not even a real city anymore. Come on. We don't count that. Mississippi I didn't know we were picking fights with random California cities. If so, Fresno, come get me. (laughs) Hey, you complimented them. You said there were two good restaurants in that city. It's like the nicest thing I've ever heard anyone say about Fresno. Dine-in and take-out at Doghouse.